vaccination can improve people's chances of survival, protect communities from new and re-emerging health threats, and enhance societal productivity. But achieving the promise of vaccination requires not just vaccines, but also appropriate incentives to encourage discovery and development, effective financing and delivery programs, and evidence-based policy recommendations. I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the New England Journal of Medicine, and I'm talking with Julie Gerberding, Chief Patient Officer and Executive Vice President at Merck. As part of the journal series in honor of the 50th anniversary of the Institute of Medicine, now called the National Academy of Medicine, Dr. Gerberding has co-authored a perspective article about the history of vaccine innovations and vaccine policy. Dr. Gerberding, could you describe some of the major vaccine technologies and techniques that came out of the past half century of research, such as recombinant vaccines, polysaccharide protein conjugate vaccines? How were they developed and why have they been important? You know, one of the amazing things about looking at the history of 50 years of vaccinology is that it's really 50 years of biotechnology as we have learned a much greater understanding of the immune system, as well as how to harness the power of an antigen, we had really a steady drumbeat of innovation moving forward. So I think it's almost really a recapitulation of the progress we've made from the scientific perspective in understanding the host, the pathogen, and how the immune system can be manipulated to respond protectively. So how has that expanded understanding of the immune system, of host pathogen interactions, how have those things changed the way that vaccines are developed? When you look at where we are today with COVID and appreciate that there are 77 different vaccines in various stages of clinical development around the world, it's very clear that our technology is driving the engine now. But that technology really depends on an ever-improving understanding of exactly what constitutes an immune stimulus, what is necessary to optimize that stimulus, to get durable protection, and ultimately to give the kind of efficacy and safety profiles that we must have in order to bring a vaccine forward. And I think the learning curve is very steep right now. So if we go back to the 70s, where we had basically five unique innovative molecules come forward, fast forward to the 2010s, where we had more than 15 And where we're sitting today, just looking at this COVID situation, I would say that our knowledge of the biology of immunology has really allowed us to try new approaches and truly move the needle. Some of the hardest to achieve vaccines are now coming into our portfolio of protective options. You say in your article that two very notable immunization-related accomplishments of the past 50 years were the eradication of smallpox and the eradication of two of the three wild-type polioviruses. So what did those eradication campaigns entail and what made them successful? Well, let's start by talking about the smallpox eradication campaign. The smallpox is unique, certainly distinct from the COVID-19 situation we're dealing with today in that the incubation period is longer. It's pretty obvious when someone has smallpox, the disease is characteristic and difficult to confuse with anything else. So the chance for really identifying cases and then finding their contacts and using that ring vaccination approach, even in some of the most difficult to reach areas of the world, that really proved to be a practical solution. It actually wasn't necessary to vaccinate everyone just needed to vaccinate the people who were in the ring or the second ring around actual cases. And as case ascertainment improved with sort of the disbursement of a public health community on a global basis, 
eradication really became feasible from a practical standpoint, but also this is a virus that really doesn't have an animal reservoir, so that once you eliminated the human cases, you didn't have to worry about a recurrent spillover from the animal kingdom. Now we can talk about polio, which is a little bit different. Much of polio is asymptomatic or not recognized as polio, but the indicator for the prevalence of polio in a community is, of course, lameness. And similar to the smallpox situation, by going into villages, even in remote areas, and identifying people who have recently become lame, it's easy to see that polio is in the community and to really intensify the vaccination efforts in those locations. Of course, the challenge with polio is that it does have an ecological reservoir. And so if you don't really eliminate it from the environment as well as from the human sources, it's very, very difficult to get that last mile of full eradication. The fact that that has been achieved for two out of the three wild-type viruses is amazing. Really a testimony to one of the biggest networks of communities of dedicated people, including the Rotary, all of the UN agencies, the CDC, and public health communities and local governments around the world. Just really a heroic effort. Of course, we're not done yet. And every time we get close, we have a war or civil strife that interferes with immunization. And that clearly is likely to be a challenge for a few years ahead. Although we've now proved that we can do it with two out of the three. So I still am an optimist and believe that we'll get there with polio too. You talk in your article about the importance of the Vaccines for Children program and the Affordable Care Act in expanding coverage of vaccines. Are there any remaining policy gaps in the United States when it comes to ensuring access to vaccination? There are some policy gaps. There are differences in coverage depending on whether a vaccine is included in the Medicare Part B portfolio or the Medicare Part D portfolio. That's a fairly easy one to fix if we would just put our minds to it. But there are also economic gaps. I think, though, the biggest challenge we face isn't so much the policy It's the fact that we still have such intense pockets of vaccine hesitancy where the trust in the communities are just low, either because people are afraid of the vaccine side effects that are not necessarily related to any epidemiologic evidence, shall we say, but still are hesitant to get their children immunized. And then on the other hand, we have sort of the systemic community-based trust issues that stem from eras of our scientific progress where many of the efforts were not trustworthy. So we see that sort of the carryover from Tuskegee and the other similar episodes where there's a built-in kind of systemic mistrust. So those issues are not really addressed by policy. They have to be addressed by really working at the community level with trusted people who can, first of all, help people understand the importance of vaccines, but also can speak truth and really provide the right context so that people can make an informed decision. So, in fact, you talk in your article about some of the real and the misguided safety concerns that have been raised for as long as vaccines have existed. Has the safety of newly developed vaccines changed over the past 50 years? Have investigators become better at identifying potential concerns before the vaccines are released? I don't think we have any evidence of that. You know, since the inception of the FDA, Vaccines receive intense scrutiny from a safety perspective simply because we are using them in otherwise healthy people for the most part. But I think the expectation and the scrutiny around safety is quite good. And I always like to use the RotaShield example 
the virus that causes severe diarrheal disease in children was addressed first with a vaccine for children that was very well studied and ultimately launched. But just a few cases signaled that there was an increased risk of intussusception, an intestinal blockage problem. And that vaccine situation alerted the CDC, who even with just a handful of cases initiated an investigation, paused the immunization program, and ultimately the manufacturer decided to withdraw the product from the market. But I think when we recognize any signal, there's an intense focus rapid detection and response, and a consistent track record, I believe, of really anticipating and monitoring even post-licensure the safety signals that we get. What has changed, I suspect, is that our tolerance for side effects is increasingly intense, and I'm watching this very carefully in the context of COVID-19 because inevitably there will be real side effects that happens with every medicine. In addition, there will be situations where someone is vaccinated and that vaccination is followed with something untoward, for example, a heart attack or a stroke or even death. And it will be hard to convince people that the two are not related causally. And especially when we're dealing with older and frail people, as we're just examining right now in Norway, with a significant number of deaths following vaccination of some very fragile elderly people. How will we really understand what's causal and what's coincidental? So I think the tolerance and the fear of vaccine safety is going to amplify those kinds of causality conundrums. And that will, of course, make it even more difficult to convince people that the benefit of a COVID vaccine far outweighs the risk that we're aware of so far. So finally, you've explained quite clearly the increasing complexity of this issue of trust in vaccination. Can you talk a little bit about the challenges that lack of public confidence in vaccines actually has us facing? And what would the strategies for community-level involvement that you talked about look like in the United States? Yeah, I think the trust and confidence is a painful lesson. I certainly learned it during my tenure at CDC, and I feel like I'm watching some of that unfold now in the hesitancy that we're seeing around people really needing COVID immunization, but not being willing even when they're eligible and there's vaccine available for them. I'm speaking particularly with some health workers who have demonstrated a strong reluctance to be vaccinated. So, of course, with pediatric immunizations that require a high degree of herd protection, measles being the most obvious example where it's such a transmissible infection that we really have to sustain very high levels of population immunity in order to protect children. And as soon as that threshold is dropped, then we see outbreaks. And it's tragic to see at this day and age, children afflicted with measles and the complications of the disease in a country like the United States, where we have every reason to have the best possible vaccine protection. But how we get past that really is a science that we still need to discover and learn more. I would say for the parents who are frightened about the vaccination of their children, Sometimes there are people who are clearly on the fringe and are not able to take in scientific information or choose to maintain their misinformation, in many cases disinformation, particularly when fueled by plaintiff's attorneys or others who stand to have financial gain. But that's a minority group. And I don't believe those people alone really are contributing very much to the recrudescence of some of these pediatric illnesses. I think mostly we have parents 
um, people like us who really love their children dearly and just cannot imagine taking any chance with their health. And so when you introduce confusion or misinformation or conflicting points of view, and that information is transmitted by people like you, your peers and social media, et cetera, who you trust for other resources of information. I think that's the situation where we create doubt. And almost all parents will ultimately do the right thing, particularly if their pediatrician or their family doctor advises them. But that element of doubt just raises the bar a bit in terms of assuring that all children who need vaccines are fully protected. Now, in populations of people who really don't just mistrust vaccines, they mistrust the whole medical establishment, I think you have to go beyond the pediatrician or the clinician sitting and having the conversation with the parent. I think in those situations, you have to involve a broader group of trusted people. One of the things that's going on with COVID right now is really recognizing that investing in, first of all, truth-telling. There's been so much over-promising on the delivery and the number of doses and the timing of COVID that we've already kind of set a scenario where there's a great deal of skepticism. So truth-telling is going to be very important. I was thrilled to see the new CDC director, Dr. Walensky, put an editorial in the New York Times that was really headlined, I will tell you the truth. Because when people have the truth, they're far more likely to do the right thing. But sometimes that truth can't come from government officials. It needs to come from the community, trusted leaders in the community, doctors and nurses in the community, but also sometimes clergy or other local opinion leaders that have earned trust over long arcs of time. And involving that group of influential people and helping them get information and get their questions answered, I think really creates a network of trusted information that can be disseminated in a lot of ways in the congregation, in the barbershop, in community settings, but also, of course, on social media. So we have a lot to learn about this, but the stakes are so high that I sure hope a broad-based effort is underway because it's going to make or break this pandemic. Thank you, Dr. Gerberding.